You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and making sense of all the latest reports in the news media regarding research into the causes and treatments of mental illness, this is where you'll hear all about that. First, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years of the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment. And welcome to the March 19th edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you've been feeling well and all adjusted to the time change when we turn the clocks ahead a couple of Sunday nights ago. As always, I welcome your feedback about the show, and I want to be your resource for mental health problems. If you have questions about your mental health or that of someone close to you, you've tried to get help or they have, and it hasn't gone well, let me see if I can help you out by steering you in the right direction. So any questions you have or feedback or comments about tonight's show or a previous show that you've listened to, please send those to me via email to this email address, Dr. Scott, spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. And I assure you that anything you send me will not result in any identifying information being revealed. Uh, read the questions on the air, withholding any potentially identifying information, and give you my advice or suggestions. Now let's get into tonight's first subject. Much was made in the press about a potential for a laboratory test that could predict which teen boys would get depression. A saliva test for teenage boys who have mild symptoms of depression purportedly could help identify those who will later develop major depression, later in life, in other words. Researchers measured the stress hormone cortisol in teenage boys, and they found that ones with high levels coupled with mild depression symptoms were up to 14 times more likely to suffer clinical depression later in life than those with low or normal cortisol levels. The test was tried on teenage boys and girls, but found to be most effective with boys. About one in six people suffer from clinical depression at some point in their lives, and most mental health disorders start before age 24. There is currently no biological test to spot depression, none whatsoever. Now, the researchers looked at more than 1,800 teenagers between the ages of 12 to 19, and they looked at their cortisol levels with saliva tests. 
and they also collected the teens' own reports of depression symptoms, and then they tracked diagnoses of mental health disorders in them for up to three years later. The boys who had high cortisol levels and mild depression symptoms were up to 14 times more likely to suffer from clinical depression when compared to other teens with normal levels, while girls with similarly elevated cortisol levels were only up to four times more likely to develop the condition. The studies, uh, the studies results had been previously published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Experts suggested that one possible reason for the discrepancy in the finding between boys and girls is that somehow or another cortisol might affect boys and girls differently. All hormones, including the, the sex hormones, influence brain function and behavior. The gender-specific hormones, androgen for males and estrogen and progesterone for females, might react differently to cortisol and could explain the difference in risk for teenage boys and girls. The saliva test could help target psychological help, such as talk therapy or psychotherapy or counseling for boys at risk of developing depression. Scientists are increasingly searching for physical markers in the body of psychiatric illnesses instead of relying exclusively on a diagnosis based on a patient consultation. In other words, the way we make a psychiatric diagnosis is we interview and observe the patient, asking them questions, talking to them. And, you know, there are no laboratory tests for depression per se. There are very highly sophisticated brain scans that can be done that will very elegantly show that uh, someone's brain on depression, as it were, shows decreased activity in key areas compared to uh, someone without depression. But this is of no practical use since it's a very uh, expensive test and uh, insurance uh, will not pay for it because they consider it experimental. There was uh, a test that can be done in a routine medical laboratory called the dexamethasone suppression test, which certainly is related to the idea that stress increases the amount of cortisol in the system, uh, in the body, and uh, that this is related to the stress response system the body has. And it was very popular when it was first proposed as a clinical laboratory test for depression back in the uh, late 70s, early 1980s. But as far as a routine laboratory test for depression, it never panned out. And my concern about this report, about this saliva test for cortisol in boys, is that there'll be a lot of excitement about it, but a lot more work needs to be done. Uh, I mean, it's a great initial study that uh, they looked at 1,800 kids, but this would have to be repeated 
with much larger groups of kids. And I think more work would need to be done to figure out why there's such a big difference between boys and girls. The bottom line is, before this is something that a doctor in their office will just order through the laboratory on a routine basis to diagnose depression and try to discover at-risk kids who will go on to develop depression later in life. This is quite a ways away. This is not yet ready for prime time to say the least. And while we desperately need biological markers to help us diagnose and therefore treat depression, uh, I think the excitement about this needs to be tempered. A lot more work needs to be done. <clears throat> Hopefully it will point the way to something that will pan out down the road. There was another report that came out recently about how older fathers seem to increase the risk of psychiatric problems in kids. There was a massive study of more than 2 million people done in Sweden, and it found that those with older fathers faced a higher risk of psychiatric problems, including autism and attention disorders. Now, compared to people whose fathers were between the ages of 20 and 24 at the time of their birth, those with fathers aged 45 or older were 25 times more likely to have bipolar disorder. And the findings were published in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. The study found people born to older fathers also were 13 times more likely to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. This research adds to a growing body of science on the negative effects of delayed procreation in men. That's an area that has traditionally focused on the risks to women and their offspring. We've known for decades that the older women are when they have children, the greater the risk of problems including Down syndrome, for example. In fact, a woman 36 years of age and older is, uh, medically speaking, categorized as, quote, advanced maternal age, unquote, which uh, I know sounds very distasteful, but the facts are that there are an increased risk of genetic abnormalities. But not much attention has been paid until recent years on the effects of advanced paternal age. So these specific associations they found in this study were much larger than in previous ones. And the size of the data set was impressive, 2.6 million people. That accounted for every person born in Sweden between 1973 until 2001. And they found that in that group, older paternal age was linked to a greater likelihood of schizophrenia, suicide attempts, and substance abuse problems in the offspring, as well as failing grades and lower IQ scores. Children of fathers aged 45 or older also were 3.5 times more likely to have autism and 2.5 times more likely to have suicidal behavior or a substance abuse problem than those born to dads aged 24 and under. 
the likelihood of having one or more of the problems increased steadily with the age of the father, signaling that there was no specific age threshold which suddenly posed new risks. So this didn't give us a cutoff uh, like we have for women in terms of what age constitutes uh, advanced paternal age. And by comparing siblings, researchers found associations with advancing paternal age far higher than in the general population. Scientists made allowances for the effects of higher income common in older men and a factor which should negate some hardships growing up, but found that strong associations remained. All right, well, we'll finish up our thoughts on this issue and move on to other topics on psychiatry today when we come back after this first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your source for mental health-related news on America's Web Radio. We're talking about a study showing that older fathers, uh, children, of older fathers, rather, have an increased risk of psychiatric problems, a very large study done in Sweden. Women have long been counseled that their egg supply is constantly diminishing, while men are making new sperm well into old age. Researchers now know that mutations, genetic mutations in DNA can happen each time sperm replicate. As men age, they're exposed to more environmental toxins that can lead to DNA damages in sperm. 
Nevertheless, women and men over the past 40 years increasingly have delayed childbirth. The average age of first-time mothers in the United States was 21 and a half years old in 1970. By 2011, it was 25.6 years of age. And men tend to be about three years older on average in terms of the first time they have a child. So the study is interesting and provocative in that it points out that whereas genetically speaking, all the focus has been on the woman and the egg, it now is apparent that there may also be genetic mutations in men's sperm that affect the outcome of children if the father delays procreation, uh, not just women. So what the article doesn't mention is, <clears throat> is this going to lead to uh, testing uh, when fathers are older to look for genetic abnormalities? And will there be any way that doctors or scientists can examine sperm of older men to screen for genetic mutations? Again, provocative, but uh, it leaves some unanswered questions. Certainly indicates not the best idea for men to delay having children and uh, certainly should give couples pause who remarry after a divorce and want to start a new family with their new spouse if uh, the father is older. Let's move on to our next subject here in psychiatry today. This is going to be important for those of you who are concerned about a friend who may have an eating disorder to hear. This article is about how to talk to a friend about an eating disorder. It certainly can apply to a family member as well. And you may think that sounds like a strange idea, but if you know anything about eating disorders, you know that a person with one, uh, it is an extremely sensitive subject. And if you try to approach that person about doing something about it the wrong way, you are really just going to alienate them and not make it any more likely that they're going to get the help that they need. And so the article seeks to give a person in that type of situation some very practical and useful tips about talking to that person in the hopes of convincing them to get help. So let's take a look at this. They give a common scenario that the signs are all there. Uh, someone you know is undeniably thinner than she used to be, even gaunt, and is armed with excuses to skip out on brunch and all the other food-centric events that you used to enjoy together. Or someone obsesses over calories and fat grams and weighs himself at least once a day. You can't know for sure, but these situations certainly seem like your friend is struggling with an eating disorder, and it may be time to say something. There are such high mortality rates for individuals with eating disorders that it is the responsibility of those close to them to do something about it, to say something. In the United States, 
20 million women and 10 million men will suffer from a clinically significant eating disorder at some point in their life, according to the National Eating Disorders Association. And the earlier he or she seeks treatment, the greater the likelihood of physical and emotional recovery. Here's what to keep in mind as you broach the sensitive subject with a friend. First, don't make a rash decision. You can't tell just by looking at someone whether he or she has an eating disorder. It's important to consider what you're judging it on and what's making you concerned. Here's some specific signs to watch for, including avoiding friends and family, wearing baggy clothes to hide the body, displaying new or different behaviors around food, significant weight loss or gain, maintaining a rigid exercise routine despite weather, fatigue, illness, or injury. You also might see or hear of someone purging, that is, using laxatives or cathartics, or constantly talking about their weight is another potential clue. Next, set a time. In other words, set aside a time to talk in a private place. Don't spring your concerns on your friend when you are, for an example, in a group setting. If a number of people are firing questions or accusations at someone, the situation will feel confrontational and be unproductive. In other words, uh, not like the interventions that you see or hear about. Do it one-on-one. -on -one. And go in willing to remain patient, supportive, and calm. Next, do your homework. It suggests that you learn as much as you can about eating disorders. There are lots of organizations, websites, hotlines, and books that can help. The more you know about conditions like anorexia and bulimia, the better you will understand what your friend is going through and be able to help in a meaningful way. If your friend is open to it, share what you've learned, but don't preach. Tell the truth is another suggestion, and make sure it's not accusatory or judgmental. <clears throat> There's uh, a suggestion here. It says, put your hand out and say, I'm a bit concerned. I've noticed some differences in your behavior and attitudes. The key is making it clear that you're there to help, not to accuse, and again, not to preach. So it's not, oh my gosh, look at all the weight you've lost. That would be the wrong approach. Likewise, stay away from you statements like you're acting irresponsibly. Focus on I sentences. For example, I'm concerned about you because you're refusing to eat breakfast or lunch. That will help you to avoid placing shame, blame, or guilt on your friend. Next, remember it's not your job to fix him or her. Your only job is to be there. And as helpless as that may make you feel, it is probably no more helpless than they feel 
Every moment they live inside this struggle. And if you aren't willing to just be there or just listen or just offer whatever help they are willing to ask for, and it may not be much, it's probably better just to hang back and show them compassion in other ways. And that leads to the next suggestion, know when to back away. Most people will be defensive when you confront them about an eating disorder. Many will deny any problem. But don't push the issue. Just say, look, I don't know, I don't diagnose eating disorders, but I'm here to help you. Don't get angry and don't get into an argument. That approach will only backfire. It's a matter of staying engaged, but when you sense that you're alienating the person, then that's when you back off. Also, avoid giving simple solutions. Eating disorders don't develop overnight, and recovery doesn't happen quickly. Telling somebody just to eat doesn't help. That's not going to solve anything. Eating disorders come out of the brain. It ends up being about food, but it doesn't start there. Explain to your friend that if she does have an eating disorder, it's no one's fault. Indeed, eating disorders arise from a variety of factors, including psychological, low self-esteem, interpersonal, with troubling relationships, and social, the cultural pressure to be thin, as well as biological. They're often genetic. Also, go to an adult or medical professional. If you're still concerned after talking to your friend about his or her health and safety, consider going to that person's parent or husband or wife But don't do so in an accusatory way, like saying, your daughter has an eating disorder. You could frame it as, I'm concerned about her, and I have reason to believe she might have an eating disorder. Here's why. I'd be happy to help you look for resources and help. You could also consult your doctor or, say, the school nurse or guidance counselor, if the person is a student. Another important suggestion is not to enable the situation. And this makes it difficult to strike the appropriate balance. There is the importance of tackling the issue head on. When we don't talk about it, then we're enabling the behavior. We're joining them in their secrets. We need to consider the outcome of our decisions. We don't want to bury someone and then feel guilty because we saw the signs, but out of social niceties, we didn't say anything, and we didn't want to offend them or for them to be angry at us. So it certainly entails some risk, but speaking up is better than doing nothing. Perhaps losing a friendship is better than losing a friend altogether to an eating disorder. And then do it with kindness. What would you say to a friend with breast cancer? You'd offer to help take her to appointments or search for a best doctor or sit with her as they navigated tricky medical lingo. 
It's the same with someone with an eating disorder. Offer to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. We'll be back with more on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us. Friday at 11 o'clock. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's Breaking News industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, annual publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. You're with Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio, and you're a source for all mental health-related news. Just a final thought about what we were discussing before the break, that is how to approach a friend who has an eating disorder. For more information, again, go to the National Eating Disorders Association. Now, next up on tonight's show, those of you who have elderly parents or other relatives, loneliness is a serious health risk for seniors. Researchers from the University of Chicago have demonstrated that extreme loneliness and feelings of isolation can be twice as unhealthy as obesity for older people. The scientists tracked more than 2,000 people aged 50 and over for more than six years. Compared with the average person in the study, those who reported being lonely had a 14% greater risk of dying. Poverty increased the risk of an early death by 19%. The findings come at a critical point as life expectancy has risen and people increasingly live alone or far from their families. A 2012 study of loneliness in older Britons found that more than a fifth felt lonely all the time, and a quarter became more lonely over five years. This isolation is having a serious effect on both mental and physical health. At any given time, between 20 and 40 percent of older adults feel lonely, particularly during retirement according to some studies. <clears throat> there was a noted difference in the rate of decline in physical and mental health as people aged, 
which could be further linked to the number of satisfying relationships that they maintain. We have mythic notions of retirement. We think that retirement means leaving friends and family, buying a place down in Florida where it is warm, and living happily ever after. But that's probably not the best idea. Retiring to some place to live among strangers isn't necessarily a good idea if it means you are disconnected from the people who mean the most to you. Many studies prove that people who stayed close to colleagues after retirement and maintained close friendships are less lonely. In a related study published in the journal Psychology and Aging, researchers found a direct relation between chronic feelings of loneliness and increases in blood pressure. Researchers studied 229 people aged 50 to 68 over a five-year period. Members of the group were asked to rate their connections with others through statements such as, I have a lot in common with the people around me and I can find companionship when I want it. During the study, researchers found a clear connection between feelings of loneliness reported at the beginning of the study and rising blood pressure. The increase associated with loneliness wasn't observable until two years into the study, but then it continued to increase until four years later. The increase affected even people with modest levels of loneliness. <clears throat> Fear about social connections may be one reason for the blood pressure increase in lonely people. Loneliness is characterized by a motivational impulse to connect with others, but also a fear of negative evaluation, rejection, and disappointment. To determine the most effective method for reducing loneliness, researchers examined the long history of other research on the topic, and they published their findings in Personality and Social Psychology Review. They found that the best interventions targeted social cognition rather than social skills or opportunities for social interactions. Stopping or preventing loneliness isn't merely a matter of providing more people to interact with. Teaching lonely people to break cycles of negative thoughts about their self-worth and how people perceive them was more effective. Studies that used cognitive behavioral therapy, a technique also used for treating depression, eating disorders, and other problems, were found to be particularly effective. In other words, if you help people to feel better about themselves and their self-worth, they're more likely to be comfortable reaching out to others socially. Effective interventions are not so much about providing others with whom people can interact as they are about changing how people who feel lonely perceive, think about, and act toward other people. Despite previous findings that favored group formats, the current review found no advantage for either group or individual therapies or interventions. 
That's not that surprising because bringing a bunch of lonely people together is not expected to work if you understand the root causes of loneliness. Several studies have shown that lonely people have incorrect assumptions about themselves and about how other people perceive them. If you bring them all together, it's like bringing people with abnormal perceptions together and they're not necessarily going to click. Whereas if you deal with them as individuals and you counteract their negative self-perceptions, that's going to be more helpful. So there you go. Beware of loneliness in seniors. Now, let's turn our attention to sticking with older people, but this time couples. Here's an interesting study that found that in sickness and in health, sex keeps older couples happy. Among older couples, physical illnesses can strain a marriage, but maintaining a healthy sex life could make a difference in how happily both partners cope. Researchers have long known the illnesses that come with age are linked to poorer marriage quality, but exactly why hasn't been clear. According to the new analysis, sexual intimacy is the link that keeps partners positive about their marriages in the face of difficult times, and a lack of sex makes matters worse. The results suggest that it may be important to stay sexually connected to protect the quality of a marriage. After analyzing data from 732 couples, encompassing 1,464 individuals, most of whom were between 65 and 74 years old, researchers found that sexual frequency was tied to relationship quality. Well-being in older age incorporates both psychological and physical well-being, as well as sexual well-being, which can occur at the intersection of those two. In this study, most men and women were white and had been couples for 40 years or more. Nearly all of the men and women were married, but about 50 people were just living together. Couples reported an average of one partnered sexual activity per month. As sexual frequency increased, so did marriage quality. The research does not prove that a decrease in sexual activity causes a decrease in marital quality. It is also entirely possible that it's the other way around. Researchers attempted to capture the nuances of marriage by asking partners to describe certain aspects of it as positive or negative. For example, emotional satisfaction was a quality participants tended to associate with a positive marriage, but most men and women listed partner criticizes as a negative marriage quality. Generally, husbands reported higher positive qualities in their own marriages than wives. The team's findings also confirmed what previous research has found. Better physical health is associated with better marital quality. Poor physical health affects the psychological well-being of that person and his or her spouse 
at the same time that it affects the sexual behavior of the couple. Without doubt, the study points to the important role that counselors can play in addressing the challenges of poor physical illness for individuals and couples. Let us now turn our attention to a much younger population's mental health issues. Uh, we're going to talk about some new information looking at the effects of bullying, first in kids and then in adolescents. The negative physical and mental effects tied to bullying among children and teens may accumulate throughout the years, according to a new study. Researchers found that teens who had been bullied in the past and those currently being bullied tended to have a lower quality of life compared to those who were bullied less or not at all. This finding and previous research on the effects of bullying suggest more rigorous work should be done on finding ways to intervene and stop bullying. In the past, when researchers have surveyed students at one point in time, children and teens who were being bullied tended to score lower on measures of physical and mental health. But few studies have examined whether the possible effects of bullying accumulate over the years. The researchers published their findings in the journal Pediatrics. They analyzed data from the Healthy Passages study, which surveyed students in Alabama, California, and Texas about how much bullying they experienced, and they evaluated their physical and mental health. Overall, almost 4,300 students completed the surveys in 5th, 7th, and 10th grades. Researchers found that about a third of the students had been regularly bullied at some point during the course of the study. Generally, those who had been bullied in the past scored better on measures of physical and mental health compared to those who were currently being bullied. Teens who were bullied throughout their school career scored the worst. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, much more on the effects of bullying in kids and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and when necessary taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. 
Support USJF as they support you. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about the effects of bullying on kids. Now, 7% of 10th grade students who had never been bullied scored low on mental health measures. That compares to 12% who had been bullied in the past, 31% who were being currently bullied, and almost 45% of those who underwent persistent bullying. About 8% of 10th grade students who were never bullied had poor physical health, Compared to 12% of those who were bullied in the past, 26% who are currently being bullied, and 22% who were continuously bullied. So the effect on physical and mental health is significant if the bullying is current and persistent. Poor mental health was defined as including traits such as being sad, afraid, and angry. Poor physical health included limitations like not being able to walk far and not being able to pick up heavy objects. One non-physical sign that a young person is being bullied is that the child doesn't want to go to school. It's important for parents to know if their child falls into one of the groups at high risk for bullying. Those include children with physical disabilities, those who are overweight and obese, and those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or questioning. This says, especially for parents, to be really attuned to what's going on in their kids' lives by paying attention, knowing what's going on during the school day, and being aware so they'll notice changes like these. Moving along to another article that talks about bullying linked to suicidal behavior in adolescence. Children and teens who are bullied may be more likely to think about or attempt suicide, uh, a new study from the Netherlands suggests. Children in the study who had been bullied were twice as likely to have suicidal thoughts and more than twice as likely to attempt suicide as kids who weren't bullied. This study was published in the journal, uh, journal of the AMA Pediatrics. Notably, cyberbullying was even more strongly correlated with suicidal thoughts than traditional in-person bullying. Suicide is one of the most important causes of adolescent mortality. Attempted suicides are significantly related to bullying, a highly prevalent behavior among adolescents. Estimates suggest that between 15 and 20% of adolescents are involved in bullying, whether as a bully, a victim, or both. Between 5 and 8% of U.S. teens attempt suicide yearly. The researchers analyzed 34 previous studies on the relationship between bullying and suicidal thoughts, and nine previous studies 
on the link between bullying and suicide attempts in young people. The children and young adults ages 9 to 21 who were victimized were 2.2 times as likely to have suicidal thoughts as those who were not victimized, and bullying victims were 2.5 times more likely to attempt suicide compared with non-victims. It isn't exactly clear why cyberbullying had a stronger impact than traditional bullying on a child's risk of having suicidal thoughts. This may be because victims of cyberbullying feel denigrated before a wider audience, or because the event is stored on the Internet, they may relive denigrating experiences more often. In the pre-Internet era, bullying was mostly limited to school hours, but these days modern technology lets bullying continue even when kids go home from school. Because schools don't have control over children's Internet activities at home, educators often struggle with the issue of bullying accountability. For instance, there is no clear legislation delineating schools' responsibilities to protect victims when cyberbullying occurs off-school grounds or after-school hours. Well, while there are not specific laws, uh, it is clear that some schools do have children sign up for contracts uh, as to proper internet etiquette and behavior when they assign them email addresses to uh, get their homework and communicate with teachers and uh, either download or upload assignments. And uh, I think that while clearly the biggest responsibility lies with parents, certainly the schools could do more uh, about the behavior that may clearly start in school but uh, extend outside the school when it comes to cyberbullying. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a newly discovered teen gene may help doctors combat mental illness. Researchers have discovered a genetic key that could one day help treat mental illnesses associated with parts of the brain used for decision-making, impulse control, and other higher mental functions. This brain area, known as the prefrontal cortex, plays a role in several psychiatric disorders whose symptoms first appear during the teenage years, and that area continues to, to develop well into early adulthood. Certain psychiatric disorders can be related to alterations in the function of the prefrontal cortex and to changes in the activity of the brain chemical dopamine. Prefrontal cortex wiring continues to develop into early adulthood, although the mechanisms were, until now, entirely unknown. Throughout adolescence, connections between the brain cells in this region continue to mature, a process that involves this so-called teen gene. In this study published in Translational Psychiatry, 
Researchers found that this gene may play a role in determining how vulnerable a person is to schizophrenia, depression, drug abuse, and other mental illnesses that involve the prefrontal cortex, which is very significant in determining executive functioning. That area is involved in decision-making, cognitive reasoning, and these functions can become pretty severely impaired in cases of schizophrenia or other severe mental health disorders. The researchers found that in mice with a dysfunctional copy of this teen gene, there were signs of behavioral problems that extended into adulthood. Moreover, researchers found that this gene was more active in the brains of people who had committed suicide than in those of healthy people. Researchers believe that toning down the gene's action may provide some level of protection against psychiatric disorders involving the prefrontal cortex. And while their work focused on mice, the study offers a first glimpse of how genetics can affect this area of the brain. They're identifying not just the gene that controls development of the prefrontal cortex, but also what intervention of chemicals might assist in the development of the connections so that it gets fully developed. In addition to the potential for new drug treatments to treat schizophrenia and other mental illnesses, the research may also provide doctors with clues as to which teenagers are most at risk of developing schizophrenia, substance abuse, or depression. Now, we talked before about a test looking at uh, cortisol levels in diagnosing depression. This is a genetic test, perhaps somewhat uh, more precise, but again, also quite a long ways away from anything that would filter down into routine practice. One of the things that's being studied is how exposure to factors that are known to increase the risk for certain psychiatric disorders, for example, drugs of abuse during adolescence, alter the expression of this gene and then in turn alter the development of the brain. And while still several years away, new treatments based on this work will likely involve a combination of drugs and therapies designed to affect the development of the prefrontal cortex. It's an area responsible for human interaction, our basic ability to appreciate what somebody else is thinking or feeling. It's empathy. And the fact that we know it doesn't fully develop until well into the early 20s has had many effects on our society, not the least of which is considerations of delaying adult-like punishment for crimes committed by younger people. And now let's talk about how low iron in the brain may be a sign of ADHD. A newer MRI method can detect low iron levels in the brains of children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. The method could help doctors and parents make better informed decisions about medications. Not just yet, though. More work needs to be done. Psychostimulant drugs used to treat ADHD affect levels of the brain chemical dopamine. Because iron is required to process dopamine, 
using MRI to assess iron levels in the brain may provide a non-invasive indirect measure of the chemical. If these findings are confirmed in larger studies, this technique might help improve ADHD diagnosis and treatment, but as yet these are ifs, and big ones at that. ADHD symptoms include hyperactivity and difficulty staying focused, paying attention, and controlling behavior. ADHD affects 3% to 7% of all school-aged children. These findings were, were presented late last year at the annual meeting of the Radiological Society of North America in Chicago. Researchers used an MRI technique called magnetic field correlation imaging to measure iron levels in the brains of 22 kids and teens with ADHD and another group of 27 kids and teens without ADHD and found that those who had never been treated with Ritalin or other drugs had lower brain iron levels than those who received the medications and those in the control group. And the lower iron levels in kids who'd never taken stimulant drugs appeared to normalize after they took the medicine. Again, um, much more work needs to be done on this before it can be used clinically. We've got to wrap up the show quickly. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week. And if not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.